0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, we proudly bring to you out of the heart of Seattle, Washington, this is Physical Culture Radio. I'm your dopest host with the most, Greg Jones, at Coach Greg Jones, Instagram and Facebook, along with my super dope host, Chris Edmonds, lead mountain dog diet trainer. Chris, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well, man. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing good. I'm headed in for a double reds red blood cells donation here at 2:30. 30. Um, the one little problem I have with my ongoing bodybuilding training is a little bit high of a red blood cell count. And um, we have a really special guest on today. So before I go into that any further, I want to welcome and introduce John Meadows to the program today that we're interviewing uh, mountain dog one Instagram and YouTube. Uh, Mr. Meadows, how are you doing today?
2: Very good,
0: sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, good to have you on. Um, and just so uh, you guys know, so John Meadows is uh, works with Chris. He's Chris's boss. He's the um, you know the the founder and owner of Mountain Dog Diet. He also owns Granite Supplements. He's an IFBB Pro uh, in bodybuilding, and um, we're really happy to have him on. Uh, Chris, do you have anything you want to say about John as well before we uh, turn it over to him?
1: For sure. If you guys you know d- don't know what he brings to the table in terms of the bodybuilding and fitness industry, go check out his YouTube. Um, it's filled and chock full of information. Um, the website, uh, mountaindogdiet.com, is also packed full of tons of information. Um, it is a member site, but so you get access to all things that we do, training, uh, nutrition, in-depth, and detailed, like, full and diet plans of what the competitors do to get on stage and off-season. Um, it's really, really detailed, as with all of our programs. So, if you guys are interested and, and want to learn more, if you don't know about um, what he does, uh, please check it out.
0: And just to preface um, John and uh, how I came into contact with, with Chris and John here, is uh, my on-again, off-again workout partner, IFBB Pro, Mark Dugdale, uh, was getting coached by John. I started working out with Mark again in 2015, started prepping for some shows, and um, he put me in contact with Mr. Meadows, um, and I jumped on in 2016. I've been on with him and Chris ever since. And um, he's kind of known for, you know, being able to effectively train bodybuilders, not only younger bodybuilders, but he's kind of formed a niche of training, uh, older guys and, um, had some different philosophies, um, kind of got away from the heavy duty thing, uh, and, and trained, uh, kind of a volume, uh, philosophy and has helped, you know, my workout partner, Mark to win, His first and several shows in 2016 and 2017 um, helped me to win some shows being an aging bodybuilder. And um, so, so John, what has, you know, go ahead and give your, any extra intro you want to give about yourself and let's, you know, dive into kind of what makes you tick and your training philosophies and um, just that whole subject. Well, I mean,
2: I started at a young age and, you know, I was 12 years old, training very, very hard. I was training for sports, but I also wanted to be a bodybuilder. Um uh, really, I mean, it's a really simple story. It literally, I was looking at magazines when in 1984 and, uh, you know, I was looking at Lee Haney. He had just won his first Mr. Olympia and, you know, there's Aspari was coming on then. He, you know, he was the young lion back then. And, you know, you had guys like Albert Beckold and, you know, just tons of guys back then that were really, really fantastic bodybuilders. And I just said, I want to look like that. Like period. I just want to look like that. Right. I want to be a part someday. So I, um, I started at a very early age and I never I changed my mind. You know, I, I, I never stopped. I never had a period of uh, six months or a year or anything or even a month where I just said, you know what? I, I'm tired of this way weightlifting thing. I'm going to get away from it. I never did. So for me, it was just a passion from a young age that, you know, I, I don't know that you see that now with kids. Uh, it's kind of crazy when I think about it because, like, my kids have just turned 10.
3: Yeah. And
2: I was thinking, holy cow, like two years from now, they'll be 12, right. and that's when I, like, wanted to be a bodybuilder. Like, I was training. I was training hard. And I'm like, man, that was crazy. Like, that just seems insane to think that a 12-year-old would have that kind of goal um, and then do it his whole life. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where I just loved it. Nobody's picking on me. Or, you know, I didn't want to bully anybody, body. And I wasn't trying to get girls. I just loved bodybuilding, and I always have.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's...
1: I mean, to me, that, that leads right into – you I've heard you talk many times, John, about training at Perillo's and what that taught you and you know, if, if you had some like takeaways of the biggest things you learned at that facility, what what would those be?
2: Well, I went to college uh very close to John Perillo's facility in Cincinnati. I was about a twenty minute drive from there. And at the time John Perillo was very, very well known. He's still going strong by the way, but he was he was uh he had a training manual and a nutrition manual. That were very popular back in the day. You know, we didn't really have coaches back then. You had to kind of figure stuff out yourself. But John did have a training manual, and he talked about his philosophy on sets and reps and intensity. And of course, he was very well known for his Perello stretching. John was the first guy that really talked about the benefits of hard stretching. He he took it to another level. I mean, he did. I mean, it was brutal when he would do it. And he had a nutrition manual. Very high calorie, very clean food, used MCT oil back then, which I was, I was never a big fan of that. But, but John was really ahead of his time. He was a big believer in lots and lots of clean food, lots and lots of intense training. And, you know, when I went in there, so I went to college, to Washington College, uh, back then, and I would drive over to Cincinnati and go train the facility. And, you know, I was a little skinny teenager in there and, you know, the guys in there were just animals. And I would just walk in there like, oh, my God, this is insane. I loved it. It yeah. was great. And what happened was <clears throat> when I was in college, I didn't have, uh, just like most college kids, I didn't really have any money. And I would um, call uh, John's facility. They had this thing where if you bought supplements from them, you could call in and you could ask him questions. Hmm. So, you know, I would buy uh, what I actually really liked were those Perillo Bars. I don't know if you remember, those Those things were really good back in the day. So I would buy a box of Perillo Bars. And, oh, hey, by, by the way, I got some questions for you guys. So I was asking all these questions, like really getting my coaching for the box of Perillo Bars. <laughs> and, um, you know, the guy, his name was Mike Matson that worked for John. And Mike was um, very helpful. He was extremely intelligent. And at some point I said, um, well, Mike, I'm going to actually be competing in Cincinnati this week. I'm going to do the teenage Mr. Cincinnati. And Mike said, well, that's interesting because I'm judging. And I was like, oh, wow. So this guy has been kind of helping me not knowing I'm going to compete. Um, is actually going to be judging me. So.
0: And how old were you at this I competed, point?
2: John? I was uh, 19. 19. Okay. So I, I competed and uh I, you know, there were, back then it was awesome. You had a 13 to 17 age group and you had a 19, 18 to 19 age group and one of each class would score off for the teenage overall. And, you know, there was, uh, I think there was maybe seven or eight kids in the 13 to 17 class and there was 10 in the 18 to 19 class. And so I'm looking these kids and I heard one of the guys had done team nationals the year before and got second place. This guy looked crazy. There was another guy that I thought looked looking better than him. There was another guy that looked like he's twice my size. So I'm thinking I think I got a shot of making the top five, which would be great. I'd get a little trophy to take home and show everybody. Um so what happened was at the finals, you know, they announced fifth place and fourth place. You're not all standing out there, you're all off the side of the stage. So they announced I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I got third. So they don't announce me third. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I guess I didn't place. Right. And then he announced somebody else in second place. Yeah. And I turned around, and I went, you know, I started to walk back and put my, you know, clothes on. I to turn around, and I took probably about 10 steps. And I heard him say my name in first place. Wow. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, me, I was thinking, hey, you guys must have made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Turn around, I ran out there, I got first place. Um, my grandmother, the raisin, was there. Uh I could see her kinda running down the aisle cheering, she was so excited. It was one of the absolute best moments of my competitive career. It was yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And one year overall and, and you know, I talked to Mike afterwards and Mike was like, uh I I think you got some potential if, if you really want to work hard. Actually, Mike now I'm a really hard worker, so he invited me to train at Perillo's. so I immediately started coming up on the weekends and Mike put me through workouts and they answered Chris's question directly. That was a level of intensity that I just couldn't have couldn't have pulled off on my own. No matter how hard I you know, I worked or thought I was working, Mike took it to a whole another level. And he was a really, really tough coach.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, but very intelligent, he pushed me very hard. Mike just had high expectations and he was one of those guys that he said, you know, you know, and he wasn't charging me any money. And so he's like, if if I'm going to take my time out of my day to help you, then you better give me your best. Yeah. And he was right. When somebody goes out of the way to help you like that, then dad's going better believe you better give him your best. So I would, whatever Mike told me, I would do it. I didn't care how crazy it sounded. I didn't care how bad it hurt. Um, I would do it. And he taught me a really, really good work ethic. And, you know, I could go back to college and, you know, during the week and train with people. And I'd bury everybody. There's nobody that (laughs) could keep up with me training the way Mike had me training. It was just, it was too hard for the other kids. So I really looked forward to the weekends. And then Mike started throwing me in with the big guys. And there were some big, big dudes (laughs) down there. So Mike was like, you know, I'm going to start throwing me in with the big guys. And, you know, I competed as a 20-year-old the following year. And I was probably 15, 20 pounds heavier and much leaner, and you know, then things you know, things started to really take off. But so they really taught me discipline back then. Mike was incredibly disciplined. I've told many stories about him and how what he expected of me, and he he knew me so well. If I cheated on my diet, he'd look at me and tell me. <laughs> and I was like, son of a gun, man, I can't believe he knew that. Um, but he was really good. Um, still one of my best friends to this day. Um, but it was just great to go down there and really learn work ethics. You know, I just it's not so common now to have that happen, and so I feel very, very, very fortunate that to, to I've had that experience.
1: Yeah, that's that's. You, know, you you put me up with Mike multiple times, and it, I can tell you the the level of detail, Like he just seems like a good dude. But I think what you touched on there is like, you know, the accountability. I think that's that's kind of lost in that coaching world today, is everyone just wants to be friends and. You know, like each other's photos, and it's, to get good hard coaching, like I think people lose sight of that.
2: Yeah, you know, you think back. Like I think back to my best coaches. I was in track, I was in football, I was, you know, I was in all every sport. And the ones that I like the most are the ones that push me the hardest. Yeah. You know the, you know I think about Dave Tate. Dave is one of my best friends. Uh, training with Dave, he's the guy that probably pushed me the hardest. And. I just appreciate people who bring out the best in you. And a lot of people just can't handle that. It's just too much for them. But for me, I gravitated toward those people. Like, oh, man, this guy's going to push me. You know, it's one of those situations where you might get mad. You know, I trained a period of time with this guy named Nick Bowman. He's the one who who showed me a lot of the crazy shoulder stuff I do. You know, the, the, the heavy partials for like sets of 30, all this crazy. I got that from Nick. Yeah, and Nick used to cuss me out while I was training. I mean, he would just <laughs> rip me. And man, you know, he he was crazy. He was a, he was the guy that I tell stories about. Would do a, power, a powerlifting show and a bodybuilding show on the same day.
4: Jesus, you
2: know, Jesus. There, there was a couple guys here in Columbus at World's Gym East where consequently I transferred schools. I went from Wellington. I came up there to chapel because it was right at my World's Gym um, so I'm I literally transferred colleges so I could train in the train in the better gym. Um. But I mean, he. When I think back, like when I see Nick now, I'm so appreciative. Of him. He was crazy, he was nuts, but man, he pushed me, and I, I appreciate people to push me.
1: Yeah, you know that's what, what's really cool is there's that video on YouTube of you and Dave and James training it uh, elite, and you're doing leg extensions, and he you do, like push into the brink, and then you go to jump out of that leg extension, and he like sh- you can hear him yelling shit you know, in the background, and then you sit back down and just crank. <laughs> Um, like that is not only, you know, me being able to see that in person was cool, but like being able to watch those videos, like those old ones of you and him just going at it with those safety bars and chains, like that's a really cool stuff to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, every weekend was, you know, was who's going to survive. Yeah. You know, people would watch all those videos or people would, the people that were there in person would just shake their head like, man, you guys are nuts. And, but you know what? We got better, you know? Yeah. I mean, Dave, But here's a guy who had, you know, hip surgeries, all kinds of surgeries, and, you know, he was training like that, and he got his squat, you know, back up to where he was repping 700, and, you know, that's where I got my pro card, and and I put on a lot of muscle training there. You know, maybe it's too much for some people, but for us, it wasn't too much. It was just right.
1: Yeah. So yeah, just... I mean, a- that, that was such a cool experience for me, like getting to, getting to come there with you together know, as a dream come true, I, mean, I was young, 24. And it totally changed my perspective. When I got back home, after coming up there to train with you guys, like I, I, my whole mindset on what training hard was like was completely different and altered to this day because of that.
0: Out of curiosity, John, what was your stage weight in that first show? And then what was the progression of your stage weight as you matured as an amateur and then when you turned pro?
2: Well, my first show I was uh when I was 13, I was 120 something pounds. Okay. <laughs> um but when I won the teenage show, I was I remember I could have been a middleweight. I remember I was in the low 170s when I won the teenage show.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And then I remember when I came back as a 20-year-old, I was in the high I was in the mid to I was in like I was like 188? Okay. I was in that ballpark. And then I, um, added slowly. Like it didn't happen overnight for me. Right. You know, I, I'm not one of those guys who can say I gained 30 pounds of stage weight this one year. Unfortunately, that just never happened to me. Um, so it kind of crept up and then I won the state title a couple of years later. I was like 193. Then I got to the junior nationals. I did that one year and I was 197. Uh, or the junior, I say, I was 197. And then, um, when i did the usa in 2000 which is when i was let's see what would i been like 20 years old something like that i was actually i weighed 202 uh the week before uh competing at the jantana and i won the overall then i went to the usa the next week and we waited a night so it's heavier i was 207 i was the lightest guy in the class at the usa in 1999 everybody else was you know somewhere around 220 you know um I like got four. And then, you know, it was like two ten, two eleven, two twelve. And then it just kinda of stuck there and I got stuck. Yeah. And it didn't really change until uh two thousand and eleven and twelve is when I really hit this curry workout thing. And my recovery kind of completely changed overnight and I was able to increase my training frequency, something I couldn't have done before. I got a nice little gain of muscle in that one year. So I went from competing at about 212-ish. And then when I went to the Masters Nationals in 2012, I was actually about 220,
4: 221.
2: Wow. So that was a really, really big leap for me. Um, the other big leap I had was just kind of rewind. 1998, I did my first Nationals. I was 197. I was a light heavyweight. I was one one out of 42 guys. A lot of guys in that that I'm sure you would know. Um, Vinny Galani got six. Fred Bigot I think got fourth. Craig Richardson got yeah. fourth or fifth. And Fred Bagoe were neck and neck. C Stevers, unfortunately, just passed away. He was second in the class. It was a really, really tough class. Um, but then, anyway, so 97. And then when I came back and did that USA, like I said, I waited in that night at 207. So that was a big jump from 98 to 99 and then from 2000 and really probably 2000 and and, and 12 uh let's see up to 2000 So if so you go back to about 2002 when i did the nationals i was 212-ish so i didn't really change much from there right until that 2011-2012 so then I had another year, and then I never really had another. So those were the two years when I got a big jump. And for me, it was like eight pounds not to thirty pounds of some guys. Yeah. Right. So it was every year. It was fighting and fighting to put on a pound of muscle.
0: <laughs> you know, it was kicking and scratching and clawing, trying to get everything I could out of it. Yeah. Did you compete in the 2004 USA by chance? Um, I did. Let's see. I did the 2000 US
2: 99. I got four. 2000. I got eight. 2001 I got 13th. I looked absolutely dreadful and then I don't think I came back until 2005 which was oh. the year I got sick that was right before I almost died with the USA was literally two weeks before I was in resting, resting the surgery
0: the reason why I asked is because I was training with Mark at the time and then went to and watched him turn pro at that show went in the uh, light heavyweight and overall um, at the USA's in 2004.
2: Yeah, I wasn't at that show, but I remember him winning, and I just yeah. remember thinking, "Man, this kid looks phenomenal." I mean, right. he looked phenomenal.
4: Yeah,
2: and uh, just what a package! Like he 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 walked away with that show, which yeah. was light. Heavyweights didn't do that. No that show, you know that. You know they didn't do that. So that was like, but there wasn't even any doubt. I mean, as soon as he walked out, I was like, "Okay, this is over."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I remember going to the the old Gold's Gym, which are out all now. EOS. Uh, fitness in in las vegas and seeing him a couple days before as he was drying out and filling up and he was just dry and hard as nails and just the most shredded full thing i'd ever seen at the time myself and i was like how is any nobody's gonna beat this guy and it was it was yeah
2: yeah mark was phenomenal man i think the year before he might have got third uh either that or national but as soon as you saw that you're like and this guy's got a future, right? And you could
0: see it; he had it written all over, right? Fun, so fun times, yeah. So tell me, tell us a little bit about um, when when you finally got your pro card and broke through. And it, you just mentioned this Perry workout thing. Is that something you developed or you adopted from somebody else? And when you started getting really good gains, because Chris and I have talked about the Perry workout uh, nutrition philosophy, the pre, intra, and post and nailing that, which is one of the cornerstones of the philosophies that you expose. So how, how did that all come about? And, and, and you get into that?
2: Yeah, sure. So I was writing articles for Teenation, nation and they were playing around with different formulas. And and I had a real interesting conversation with their owner. Um, it was, it was a great conversation and, and the conversation went something like this, like, John, you know, do you think you can get any better? And I said, I don't know, man. I mean, I pretty much weigh the same forever competing. Like, so we looked at we looked at, okay, what what are you doing? What can you change? So let's take a look at your training. Can you train harder? Like, can you actually go to the gym and train harder? And I said, well, I don't think it'd be beneficial. I think <laughs> my intensity is really high. I don't think that's going to help. And it was, okay, what about the volume? You think you could do more sets? And I said, I don't know, man. I mean, we're already doing what most people consider really high volume. Yeah. And he said, Well, what about pulling back volume? I said, I already did that. Didn't work. And so, really, the only thing left was, what about your frequency? Can you hit the muscles more often? Maybe not harder, but but more often. You know, protein synthesis tends to you know, lasts pretty strongly for about forty eight hours. Do you think there's any way we could train more frequently? And I said, I don't know, man, I'm so sore. I can't imagine training my legs on Monday and then coming in on Friday or even Thursday and hitting them again. Like yeah. I can't even come conceive of that they hurt so bad. So he said, Well, <clears throat> we're um we've got some things that we've been doing with Casey nitrolycate and branch civil dextrin, which was new to me at the time. Um, that I think would help you. So I want to just start, I want you to start playing around with some formulas and let me know what you think. So you started playing around with the ratios, how much of each. And it didn't take long. You know, I was probably a couple weeks into it and it was like, the soreness was gone. I mean, it was yeah. completely gone. That ended up becoming the plasma product. Um, oh. and so I was kind of the guinea pig for that. And it was phenomenal. Like I, so I started training, more frequently and i started growing like i mean it was phenomenal and um i i mean i swear to god there was no new drugs. there wasn't some super drug i found or or i didn't change doses or anything like that it was literally the ability to recover and i got to where i wouldn't get sore at all and at the time i'm coaching a lot of people so i'm like you know what i want you guys to try this and so i started getting all these messages and people are like I don't think I'm training hard enough, and I'd say, wh well, why do you say that? And it's because I stopped getting sore,
4: yeah,
2: I said, well, that's kind of the whole point, you know that's kind of the whole point to put your body at a level of recovery that you can you can train much, much more often, and you can stimulate growth more often and um so it worked really, really well, and that was kind of the award here my philosophy, and it wasn't just my result, it was many, many, many people, you know Mark actually is another one of those people that we found that man and and for me like the marker of a good workout used to be how sore i
4: could get right the
2: more sore i was you know um i kind of laugh thinking about it now but my idea at the time was the more sore the better but you know it became very obvious to me that you actually don't even need to get sore to make progress i'm not saying it's a bad thing but what i am saying is it's not necessary So it opened my eyes up to a kind of a different world, man. And um, I've been a big believer in it ever since. I fully understand not everybody's on board with it, and that's okay. I'll keep doing it. I'll keep having my clients do it. Yeah. Um, That's fine. Um, But that's really made a huge difference for me.
0: And what year was this? 2010? 2011.
2: 2011. You know, going into Masters Nationals. Okay. In 2012, yeah.
0: Gotcha.
1: What what blows my mind about that, John, is like how people are so resistant when they fight that. But to me, like even if you don't believe that it won't make you sore, that's an easy way to get an extra meal in, so to speak, of a lot more calories, where if you just drink water, you're taking in zero while you train. Um, That's always blown my mind, why people aren't willing to give that a shot.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, it, it's interesting because there were, really wasn't much literature on it. I believe me, I tried to dig into it. The only literature was on endurance athletes, which was actually very promising. And then they had some rat studies where they literally gave some of them cluster dextrin, threw them in the water, and the ones who had cluster dextrin could tread water longer, and the other ones drowned and died. <laughs> so there, I mean, there really wasn't much literature on it. And then, yeah, it literally was sink or swim. But then, <laughs> then I, I I have seen some studies. That were done in the mid 2000s that were really impressive, where they used mixtures of essential amino acids and carbohydrates. And cortisol levels um, remained basically unchanged. And they measured 3-methylhistidine. 3-methylhistidine is a biomarker of muscle protein breakdown. Mm-hmm. And they showed that you can virtually eliminate muscle protein breakdown by doing this, by ingesting, co-ingesting, amino essential amino acids and, and carbs and, and honestly they didn't only use Gatorade. It wasn't like they used any special
0: carbs. I, you know I wonder so if it was I wonder if that also you know, if that uh gets you out of that catabolic state, does that also do you think there also will lower your cortisol levels at the time of training? Has there been any research? Well,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah, training is catabolic. Right. And the right. thought
0: is the thought
2: has always been at post workout time, <clears throat> you get yourself out of that catabolic state, but I looked at it at even di- a little different level. I said, I want to get yourself out of it, like as you're training, right? You know, as you're, as you're breaking down and doing, doing the things you do while you train, I want to address it right then and there. So the post workout time for us isn't as important. It's what happens insurance that's even more important. And, um, I mean, if you look at just what it causes uh, muscle growth, you know, net protein balance, having more protein synthesis than you have pro- protein breakdown is kind of a very fundamental way to look at it. it yep. If you have less muscle protein breakdown, it's tilting the scales in your favor. And a lot of times you stimulate a lot of muscle protein synthesis, but all it's doing is getting you back to baseline because you've had so much damage. Right. And, you know, <clears throat> and you know, there's a lot that's happened in our world since then, you know, now we know that, Muscle damage, um, too much of it is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, you can actually call it tear. You know, you get little tears in the cell membrane. You can actually tear through the fiber itself, and it becomes necrotic. And then you regenerate a muscle fiber inside the cell membrane. Um, but that's just to kind of get you back to baseline. So um, it's it's there. I think there's a lot to the notion that managing muscle protein breakdown and training really hard, which means you're putting a lot of mechanical tension on muscle fibers, which is what drives growth. That's, that's progressive resistance in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you, but, but, you know, I think the, the the scientific community was so focused on muscle protein synthesis, They never looked at the other side of the equation. And that's always what I was more interested in was the other side of the equation. And that's why I think there's a big, huge gap in knowledge that exist because they've been so focused on the muscle protein synthesis. They forgot the other part.
0: Yeah. So specifically speaking, um, because, you know, I've taken both the test products and granite supplement products, and I'm currently in my inter-workout just to let the listeners know kind of a, a specific usage of this inter-workout and exactly what supplements we use. Um, I, I, I use the recovery factor and then also the intra-carb. I sometimes put aminos in there, always creatine. What is the difference? How many carbs should you have? Let's say an average 180 to 200-pound bodybuilder out there, which would represent a lot of people. Um, what's the difference between the intracarb and the recovery uh, factor products? How many grams of carbs should a 200-pound bodybuilder have in the intra-workout? would be your suggestion.
2: Well, first of all, the intercarb is no different than the carbs that are in recovery factor. Okay. The reason why I made that was because at some point, you just if you're just adding recovery factor, you're just adding aminos that you don't necessarily need. So what I was trying to do was make it a little bit more cost effective so that you didn't have to keep adding more and more aminos that you okay. get in recovery factor. Um, so it's just a way to get extra carbs, you know, like some people do one scoop of recovery and then some people like yourself, I'd say now add, you know, add an intra-carb scoop on top of that. Right. And I think it varies. Some people can do good on 20 grams. Some people need 60.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, it varies a lot. You know, one of the interesting things is recovery. Some of that's genetic too. I mean, you got some guys that, man, they just have a hard time recovering and you know some people that recover really, really well. So yeah. the guys that are recovering really well can get away with a lot lower dose. And the way I tell people to dose it is you essentially take the amount, the least amount that you can take and not really get sore. That's the <clears throat> excuse me, that's the goal, it's to it's to recover and to not be real sore. So if that happens in one scoop, great. If you need two. And then you look at it this way too, then you got differences in body parts. Maybe your legs get really sore, but maybe your arms and shoulders don't get sore at all. So yeah. maybe on arms and shoulders you don't need really, you don't need any. But on your legs maybe you need two scoops. So you kinda look at the, the whole goal of that to me is is just as the name implies, it's just to help the recovery when it's needed. Um right. so it's not necessarily shoveling down tons of it, every single workout you do. I've got a much more meticulous approach. You know, if I'm doing legs, I'm using two scoops. If I'm if I'm doing chest and back, I use one. If I'm doing arms, I don't use any. And that's yeah. just how it plays out for me. Other people are different. That's just kind of how it plays out for me.
1: Right. You know, that's something we see, Greg, I know between you and I, I, I can handle a lot more volume, and that could be our age discrepancy. Yeah. But, I mean, I would argue, even when, when, I, when I was a natural, uh, my recovery was just as good, if not better, than it is now. So that's, that's
0: you And even when I was in my 20s, and I don't know if, John, you were the same way as I am as you get as you're in your 40s now. I'm in my later 40s. But I found even in my 20s, when I used to do one pod, body part a day and train six days a week, about the middle of the week, I would need a day off. My nervous system would be rocked and I'd be in my mid 20s. But I was going heavy as shit, kind of the old heavy duty style. We were all kind of following Dorian in the mid 90s in um, the Mike Mencer style, but some other people could recover and keep going. I'd get midweek, I would get three workouts into some heavy duty training and m- my body be rocked. If I didn't take that fourth day off and and tried to go six or seven days in a row, I, I, I could, I like my performance would go down, tendonitis would start creeping in. And to this day, if I go too much and you know, I, I pretty much have to take about two days off a week now you know, I go three days in a row, I, you know, four day max, I, I need a day off. How how's that changed with you or what you found in coaching people? I know everybody's different, but, um, you specifically.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. My, my recovery, just to be candid with you is not as good as it was, you know, I'm, I'm about ready to turn 47. It's not quite what it was when I was 40. Yep. Um, <clears throat> it's still pretty good, but, it's not quite as good as I've gotten older. I've had to pull back a little bit of the volume on occasion a lot of times I'll train hard on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I really need a day off. yep it's actually not it's actually not so much central nervous system fatigue as most people think unless uh-huh. it's really high volume work high volume work uh tends to impact c n s c n s fatigue um if you're doing a lot of aerobic work that actually can do it as well. And also um, muscle damage itself can cause CNS fatigue, yeah. which most people don't really get that correlation. Just because you feel a little tired, isn't mess- I think we're we're a little too quick to say it's CNS fatigue. It's not necessarily your nervous system. You may feel that way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I would say if I've gotten a little older, it's a little bit tougher. you got to manage your volumes a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't, I can't really say there's like a perfect system for me because I've been doing a lot lower volume lately, and it's been working great. But eventually, it won't work, and I'll have to go up and do some more volume. Right, and then that'll quit working. You know what I mean? It's like that's what we are—we're adaptation machines. Yeah. So you know, but in general, some people can just handle a little more volume than others. <clears throat> and if you can get, I mean. I guess in a perfect world, if you could get to where you recover really, really well, if you could train the body part every we'll say three days. Right. You know, so you know you've hit protein synthesis and then you hit it again. Um, that would be ideal. The problem is now you gotta really limit your your training style, the exercises, because now you can break your body down, like you're talking about tendinitis. And this is where none of the scientists um can really talk about this because they don't know, they don't understand it. The guys like you and me, we do understand it. they can say, you need to train X amount of days. And you and I can say, well, that sounds very on paper, right. but guess what's going to happen to my body when I do that <laughs> over six months? Yeah. Yeah. So I, specifically, you know, so I guess those are some thoughts on that.
0: Right. I specifically, you know, I, I just was talking with Chris um, about last week and, Lately, my shoulders getting a little bit better. I've been able to push my weight a little heavier all, you know, within uh, with safety in mind and not doing anything too crazy as I've had some past injuries and, you know, torn tricep and, and whatnot and some lower back issues. But I've been able to push a little bit heavier as I get healthier and do more of, you know, maintain my therapeutic stuff, you know, active release, chiropractic, massage, that kind of stuff and hit nail my intro workout and all that. But one of the things I found as my joints feel better and I go a little bit heavier, then you go heavier for about a week. And then I hit my, my push workout after doing, you know, heavy legs, a heavy pull and a, you know, fairly heavy push. And then when I came back to my next pulling workout, um, my, my elbows had some residual soreness, not in the, not in the old injury, but just general, just from going heavy. And I was like, okay, I need to pull back. So there's a little bit of an instinctive thing and your body will give you feedback. You got to listen to the feedback it's giving you and not ignore things. Is that something you've learned as you've gotten older? um, Is really to kind of listen to your body? Your
2: body always tells you. Yeah, yeah, your body always tells you. You always get warnings. Yeah. Um, And when you feel something like that, you can either ignore it or you can go, huh, yeah, maybe maybe I don't want to do six sets of six sets of bench presses in a row. Maybe it was too much on my elbows. Right. You know, your body will always tell you. I had a situation. It's probably about three or four months ago where I felt great. I was uh, doing dumbbell bench presses, and I was using more weight than uh, I actually ever used in my entire life. Wow. And I I did a set of eight, and I was like, man, this is crazy. My strength is really good today. And what I always used to say over the years was that's when you got to be really careful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I went over to the incline, which I've always been pretty strong on. Yeah, I was, you know, I was going to do a set of 10 or 12 with 275. And on the fourth rep, I felt a pull. And uh, I was like, oh, that didn't feel good. So I racked it. And yeah. I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm yeah. not going to go try to do a fly. I'm not going to find an exercise that may not hurt as bad. I am done. Yeah. So two days later, uh, it was black and blue. Wow. And I was thinking I was thinking, Whew, that was one rep away from being a tear.
4: Yeah.
2: A full tear. Absolutely. So I would have tried one more rep. But um I've gotten much better at that over the years. There's something you know, I was uh squatting at Elite the other day with um Jordan Shallow, the muscle dog. And I did a set, and I was like, you know what? <clears throat> my left groin felt a little bit funny. I don't think it's anything bad, but I'm going to be careful, and I'm going to wrap it. So I put a knee wrap around it, and I did another set, and it felt fine. I was like, okay. But my point is, is that any time I feel anything remotely off, I don't dismiss it. I don't go, oh, well, I'll just I'll just work through it. Crying you
3: know. through it, right. <laughs> you
2: know. No, I'm doing something different. I'm either, if it feels like an an injury waiting to happen, then I'm not going to train. I'm going to stop if I feel something pull, If it's something where I'm not warmed up or an exercise doesn't feel right, I'll change exercises. Basically, you do what you need to do to stay healthy and stay in one piece.
0: Right. And I think that people really need to take heed to this, especially if you're getting ready for a show, you're in prep, you're in a deficit of calories, And, um, in concomitantly, you're maybe on, you know, some oral preparations, which are getting you drier, getting you, uh, more cut. And, um, the, the, the reputation is that it can be hard on your joints. It can make your joints real kind of creaky and tweaky and, and cause these little problems. What is your take on that when guys are getting ready and start implementing, Um, oral preparations to get, you know, real dry and real cut um, and and its effect on the joints?
2: Well, the first thing that uh, people got to be careful of, it's not even the deer, it's the anti-estrogens. You know, you start shutting off aromatase with Arimidex and things with letro and things like that, and you're asking for the joint problem. Yeah, I mean, that stuff makes your joints feel absolutely terrible. So I were more I worry more about that. I worry more about that. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, when you're dieting, some people clean up their diet and a very fundamental mistake they make is they don't take in enough sodium. Right. They don't uh, have the water retention that you actually want at that phase. You know, when you're in a kind of a lean state, you know, you want water retention, you want a little bit of cushion in those joints and people You know, they go to all this low sodium food. And whereas, you know, I'm salting everything while I'm dieting. I'm putting either hot sauce on it or sea salt on it, but I'm trying to keep my sodium up. And that's actually a good way to transport carbs and water as well. So it's, I mean, it's just a good nutrient to have in your body that people vastly underestimate. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing I would say is when you start getting ultra lean, you just start literally losing saturated fat out of your joints. So they're just not as cushioned, so you got to be got to be careful there too. But I think uh, chemical preparations, I think the anti aromatase really can put you in a terrible position with your joints. And then I think if your diet's lacking in sodium, then if you do low carb, you know your body's not going to be as water-tender. You're going to be peeing all the time. You're going to release you're going to release uh, water. Uh, you know, so that's another thing that happens it can put people's joints at risk. And then the other thing is if I had to think of from a tear perspective, I think very people are very vulnerable to tears just because they're dehydrated. And you know, you think of somebody getting up in an hour of cardio, sweating their butt off, you know, getting to the gym, sweating, they're taking a bunch of clam and P three, so they're sweating. You're all the sweating going on, so they're losing minerals and they're losing sodium, they're losing fluid. And then, you know, Dehydrated muscle is a really fragile muscle, man. It's really easy to tear it. Yeah. So, um, that's another thing I always encourage people to keep in mind. You gotta really stay hydrated, really keep sodium in your body. Those things are really, really important overall, but especially when you're pre contest.
1: Yeah. So getting and to another, the... another reason to drink drink a ton of intra, right? So I always find personally that I'll actually double the water intake in that intra when it tastes good and to stay extra hydrated like you were just talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So getting uh, in, in speaking of the uh, estradiol count in guys, um, if if somebody were to get blood labs and during a prep and they're on a, a aromatase inhibitor like uh, tamaxifen or Arimidex, um, what should they be looking at level wise? Uh, do they want to keep it above 20 and into the 30s and 40s and not down into the teens? If it gets down into the teens, would that be? Kind of the levels you don't want to see it that low as far as the joint integrity?
2: Yeah, you don't want to see something 10, 15, 20, 25. And everything you got to think about is hormones are made to be in a ratio. Right. So if you have sky high test levels, then your estrogen is going to be a little bit high. It's okay if it's a little bit high if you have sky high test levels. Yeah. You know, so you don't want it to be 200, but you don't want it to be 20. Right. You know, um, I always felt like when someone was 30, 40, you know, that ballpark was okay. And even if they went out of the top range, if their test levels, free tests and total tests were out of range too on the top end then that, it's okay because it's a balance. Right. Um, you mentioned tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is actually not a aromatase inhibitor. It's an estrogen antagonist, which is to me a much better option because it's not actually shutting aromatase off. And actually what uh some of the research shows is that estrogen can actually help you burn fat so if you if you actually wipe your estrogen out you actually have a harder time burning fat right so i always try to mention that to people too it's like if your goal is to wipe out estrogen you're you're probably going to cut sell yourself short a little bit of fat burning that you can get and that's why that's why i like tamoxifen and um doesn't have the effect on your lipid panel your hcl things like that doesn't hurt your joints doesn't hurt your libido like you have a like, you have this whole long list of side effects that you get with things like Letron and Remedex yeah. that I don't think are worth it.
4: It's like, yeah.
1: okay,
2: that's not worth it to me. I'll just right. take a little Tamoxin and I'll be fine.
4: So, Good point.
1: Uh, All right, Greg, let, let, let's get to that. Let's get to this last section here and yeah. uh, wrap this bad boy up. You know, one, one of the things I think anyone that's followed John's career, and I know something I extremely admire, is just how long you stuck it out and continue to work and continue to progress and get better. Um, until you eventually turn pro um, at TMU. uh in, in your in your mind, John, when 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 was that a goal to turn pro, and when did you realize that, that was going to be a possibility
3: for you?
2: Well, it was a goal when I was 13 years old, and I competed for the first time. I mean, I, I'm not making that up. I literally, I I truly, truly wanted to be a pro then. And when I transferred colleges. Back when I, you know, I told you I went from Wilmington to Capital when I was in my early 20s, I transferred to go to a better gym because at that point in my mind, I was going to be a pro. There was no doubt in my mind. Um, now, what happened through the years was I had a lot of doubts in my mind. Maybe I'm not good enough. I mean, how do you go from fourth at USA, you look better, then you get eighth, and then you drop to 13th. I mean, talk about doubting yourself. I'm like, what am I doing, man? I, this is I'm going the wrong way. Right. So I had a lot of doubts in my mind, but what I didn't doubt was I loved to train. So regardless of whether I was on the computer or not, I knew I was going to train hard just because I loved it. So eventually there'd be a point in the year where it's like, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll see what I look like. I've been working hard. But I didn't, I, you know, the the really confident part of me, I was really confident in 2000. I got fourth in 99 and in two thousand I showed up and I was better and I got eighth. But that's the year Branch Warren showed up, Troy Abbas was out of the <laughs> Oh
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean I'm I'm standing right inside. those are the two guys I was standing beside when I laid in. And wow. I'm I'm laying in and I'm like, Well, okay, I'm already dropped down to third place. <laughs> that's <laughs> assuming I beat everybody else. So, you know, it was tough. And then at the North American in 2004, I got a disputed fourth place, and I was like, "Oh man, I, I feel like I'm right there." And then, you know, I got had my surgeries, so everybody said, "You can forget it. Like, there's no way you'll ever turn pro, uh, <clears throat> based on the scars on your stomach and all the stuff you got to deal with now." Right. So it wasn't until that 2012 Masters Nationals where I put on all that muscle, because at that point, you know, 220. Well, my frame, being as lean as I was, was, was a pretty impressive amount of muscle. And everybody at that show was like, "You know, we this you only look like the same person. You, you look totally different." Wow. And, you know, I got second place at that show. I lost to a much smaller, but much prettier physique, Dennis uh, Hobson, super nice guy. But um, that's when I said, "You know what? Okay, this I can make this happen. Like, like uh, it's right there." You know, then it was second place falling year, then second place falling year. You uh, know, but it eventually happened. So I I, I thought in two thousand I could make it happen, but I wasn't really confident, really truly confident again until probably two thousand and twelve. So there was probably twelve years there where it was like, you know, it's gonna be rude. and part of it was just so hard to get a pro card back then.
4: Yeah.
2: Right. I mean if you look way back then it was just the overall at the USA and then like in ninety nine, uh when uh, Garrett won, I think that was one of the first years where he did the runner up. So it was the overall and the runner up. Melvin Anthony won, and Garrett Downing got the runner up. So, I mean, it was so difficult. You knew who the guys were at Nationals in the USA, and they were animals. Yeah. I mean, right. most of those guys in the top five could step right into the pro ranks. You don't really have that now. You don't really have any depth. But um, so part of it was just so bad and hard back could to get a pro card, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, what's really cool to me is, like, in that PMU program, and for you guys who don't know, uh on com, that training program look his entire diet, supplements, mood, outlook. And what the cool thing, and I still to this day believe that's my favorite program of all the ones that you've written, simply for that, like, mental outlook about what you had going into each training day. And I remember at the beginning, like, you could tell, like, you knew there was a chance, but then as it got closer and closer, and, and you just kept getting harder and leaner and fuller, like you could tell, like you were you were ready to turn pro. Or at least that was the perception I got. Like if it was time, and you're ready.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. I'm gonna have to go through and read that again. You got me really curious <laughs> now. But <laughs> I really, put, I really had fun. I, I put my heart and soul into that, uh, just, just like I did the Arnold program too. Um, but that was that was yeah. certainly fun. That was that was an awesome time.
1: To me, that Arnold Arnold prep, I I remember looking at the photos that you would post on Instagram and, and, you know, being there on on stage. Like, do you feel like that was the best look you ever had?
2: I don't know if it was the best look, but it was uh, certainly the leanest I've ever been in my life. I mean, I had literally no measurable body fat. I I was 3.7% underwater. Wow. And 3.7% 3, 3. underwater was the lowest reading ever obtained at the Ohio State Lab where I had it done. I mean, even their track and field athletes, none of those people even have a 3.7 underwater. So
3: yeah.
2: it was the leanest. I don't know if it was the best package. I will say this, once I had time to eat at the finals that night, I was really pleased with that look. That was a pretty crazy look. Um, I like the look that I had when I won my pro card. At 220, 221, I thought that was a really nice look at seeing you. The problem there was I was so pale, you really can't see it in the pictures. <laughs> so,
3: um
2: yeah man, I think the Arnold look was a really nice look. I, I I did the Tampa pro also. Uh I got third place there, beat several Olympians. That was my second pro show. That was a really nice look too. That was that was crazy. That is the one where Scott Stevenson and I were in the sauna. You know, four hours and trying to make weight. And I finally made weight, then I literally ate nonstop like the whole night up until the next day. That was a pretty crazy look, too.
0: I think Chris had mentioned you in Charlotte before, too, was his favorite look. Oh God, yeah, I like that a lot.
2: Yeah, I thought the Charlotte look was nice too. It was um, that was a, that was a good look? That was they weighed in in time to give me enough time to eat. So. I felt like that was a pretty good package too. Um I'm still kinda of befuddled kinda of how that show went. Um I was in the first call out, but that was uh that was a nice look too, man.
1: You came out and hit that front double man and I was like, Oh shit, I was close. I was like maybe four or five rows back. That was a good, I like that. That was, that was hard.
2: Yeah, I think that was the first show I ever did a vacuum man. Like I really oh, put wow. in my vacuum for that show. And I actually, actually did a vacuum. And when I did that, the, the head judge, it was, um, Tim Gardner. Like when I pull, pulled that vacuum in the front of by I could see the look in his face. Like, I didn't think you could do that. It was like the look <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
2: I'll never forget that. It was pretty cool. And then like when they called the call out, I was the first guy he called out. So I think he liked it too.
0: <laughs> John, how has your philosophy changed as you've matured as a coach with, um, the use of, uh, HRT, um, for, for yourself and, uh, as you coach bodybuilders doing shows, um, h- how has that matured? How has it changed? Has it changed? What's your philosophy on, um, HRT and the use of, uh, PEDs and, and, bodybuilding? Well, um, I mean, it's,
3: um,
2: uh, I don't really know that it's changed that much, I- I was a big experimenter. Like I've probably experimented with everything you can think of. Uh, The only thing that I can really say I never did was BMP. That's one of the few things, but everything else I've pretty much done. So I'm a curious guy. I always like to experiment. I always did a lot of research, but here's what I would say. After years and years and years of trying everything you can imagine, I just don't see the benefit over just the good old basics. Yeah. You know, I always tell people if you can't grow on Test and Gh in your off season, then you're in the wrong school. And I do believe that. Like, if you need six different drugs in your off season to grow, then, I mean, I guess you can do that. But I just think that, uh, you know, I'm very, very basic in the off season. Uh, very, very basic. Test, Gh, and Movedex. Um, Pre-contest, I'm pretty basic too. Yeah, everybody reacts a little differently to different things, so I can't say that there's a perfect uh, combination for everybody. You know, I tend to like Mastron. I, I tend to like one preparations if they're done right, which is pretty rare these days. Uh, I tend to like pharmaceutical growth hormone. I can't stand a generic hormone. I never advise it. I never will. Um, you know, I'm very, very mild. I'm like the thyroid, you know, maybe four weeks at a, little teeny tiny dose of that yeah so i've I've always been pretty conservative with the doses uh and that that really hasn't changed and it probably never will change just because i don't really see the you know when you look at risk versus reward and you know i know plenty of guys that that, you know (laughs) take a heck of a lot more than it's mostly the younger coaches that come in they're they're really the guys that are pushing the two grams of tests and the grandma trend and grandma on. I just don't think that's necessary. And, you know, you've seen some people, unfortunately, lose kidney function. You've seen people die. Yeah. Um, I suspect in the years coming, it'll get worse. As more people get high blood pressure and they don't really pay attention to their kidneys. I suspect there'll be a lot more kidney problems.
4: Right.
2: So we'll see, man. I just think that if you, Train really hard. You really work hard on your nutrition. I just don't think you need as much of that stuff. I'm not saying you don't need me. any. I mean you'd be a fool to say that, but what I am saying is that you don't need the massive amounts that these uh young kids are putting people on these days that I just don't see it. Um Yeah. You know, and I've worked with several people that have won pro shows and you know, I could tell you what they've done and you'd just be like, No way, that's impossible. You know, I, I've had four people that won pro shows with no diuretics yeah. and you know i don't i don't really know anybody that's been able to do that with people that repeatedly win pro shows with no diuretics so i don't even think you need them yeah um some you know certain advice is a little different somebody might need a little bit of something but the hammer diuretics is like i don't think that's needed so
4: right
2: yeah i guess i'm a little bit of a limp you know i did have a one client lead me this year, he said I wouldn't have any do enough drugs. I said, okay, man, you can go, you can go somewhere else. But wow. uh, that's okay, though. Yeah. That's, a, that's okay. I'm okay with that.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, you know, so I've got the things that I believe in. I stick to it. You never want to hear any me putting anybody in a hospital. Um, but I do hold a very high standard for how hard they diet and how hard they work. I'm not afraid to pull somebody down to a calorie level that makes you cry. I don't care.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: Yeah. yeah so and
0: yeah. those are where then the, ba- wh- are where the wh- basics are at yep
1: yeah i mean when you eat egg white and ketchup and that's it they get shredded
2: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I tell people that story all the time like it's hard for me to even put into words like if you think about your hardest buy and how bad you felt and multiply that by 10 and that's how i felt before Arnold yeah. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was that
1: was that that was horrific <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, your feet were covered in blitzers, right? I remember you, like, getting
3: on the
2: treadmill and being like, dude, I can barely even walk. Yeah, man, it was bad. I was sitting in uh, Metro, this gym over here one day, you know, I was like two weeks out, and somebody walks over and says, you know, I can see, like, the entire outline of your skull. It's your skull. <laughs> I can see. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, I know. I know, man. I'm still still nine pounds overweight, though.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what it takes to be number one.
1: You know, I think if, if you guys listen back to this, uh, the, the biggest takeaway for me of everything that John just talked about and discussed is, you know, he he said a very cool quote of "I just love to train." So I think we wrap this bad boy up. Like, if you if you learn to find a system that you love to train and you look forward to it every single day, like that's truly where you'll we'll be able to improve your the most
0: yeah yeah and i i want to really thank you john for taking the time to uh come on chris and my show uh physical culture radio um we really appreciate your time and i think this the listeners will get a lot out of this episode into the mind of an expert who's been in this industry for decades and uh, i just want to thank you again for coming on um For Chris Edmonds, I'm Greg Jones uh, with our special guest, John Meadows, today. And thanks for listening, guys.